Hi, you're listening to the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law and Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, this is Amy, and this is the first episode of the Law and Blockchain Podcast. My special guest today is Daniel Rice. So Daniel and I actually go uh, back a little bit. Um, We first met each other back in, I think, 2015, 2016, when we were sitting on blockchain panels in LA together, because back then there was really a dearth of people who could talk meaningfully about the space. And in late 2017, Dan and I actually partnered together to work on a project actually in the legal tech space. Um, We were doing stuff around smart contracts and dispute resolution. But today for this first episode, we are going to give a quick introduction of blockchain. Um, Dan is great at simplifying this stuff. Um, And so, Dan, do you want to, well, first of all, thanks so much for joining the show. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Do you want to first give us maybe 30 seconds about how you got into the Bitcoin or blockchain space? Definitely. You know, so going back to before Bitcoin, even, I spent a lot of my free time thinking about how to build decentralized systems on the internet. And I had actually come to the conclusion that there was no way to truly decentralize the system and uh, kind of given up on it until I started reading up on Bitcoin. I think I started reading about it in early 2013, maybe 2012, started seeing some articles about it, but assumed it was a scam for a while. And then uh, 2013, dug in really deep. And it's experience that a lot of people have had. But once they start reading about it, they just get really interested. And they kind of describe it as going down a rabbit hole. And that's what happened to me. And so 2014, I started a meetup in Los Angeles called Bitcoin Developers Los Angeles. And I did that for some time. And that's kind of how, you know, you and I ended up meeting Amy on speaking circuits around the technology behind it, blockchain and also Bitcoin itself and other other technologies related. So yeah, so I've just been really obsessed with it uh, to the point that I've been for- forbidden to speak about it at home, things like that. So <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's been the last two years for me. Fantastic. And to add further context, Dan is a very experienced CTO in several industries, everything from entertainment all the way to you know, legal tech and fintech. Um, so Dan, first question, and it's a pretty basic one, what is blockchain and how is it different from Bitcoin or crypto? Sure. So blockchain is just a basic construct of the tech behind what really became popularized through Bitcoin. So the concept of a blockchain is that data is stored in these blocks and each block references the prior block. And so because they reference the prior block, you can't insert any data without it being viewed as something that's been modified. So basically what ends up happening is as you collect blocks one after the other, they reference each other in order and you end up with a chain of blocks that can't be mutated in any way by anyone else 
without that being obvious. And so what comes out of that is you think of each block as an Excel spreadsheet, you can store information into each one of those blocks. And since they are all tied together, you can be certain that none of the blocks have been changed. So you can almost immutably store information into a blockchain. The added part to that is you need a way for everyone to agree on which of those blocks are actually valid. And that's some of the other tech that goes into distributed ledgers. And it's called consensus, which is coming to the conclusion of which blocks are actually valid and and a part of that chain that exists. All right. And so how is blockchain the technology? How does that relate to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? So the initial large use case for blockchain, although the the technology had been around, there are patents on blockchain style tech that go back, I think, to the early 2000s or even earlier. Uh, But no one had really gone that deep on it as much as a widespread use like Bitcoin had. And The idea there was, well, if we just store basically coin balances into these blocks and you just have to store initial balances in the first one and then you can store just transfer records after that, then you can essentially keep a state of an entire accounting system there where you always can agree with all the other participants on what the balance is of any given account. And so the basis behind Bitcoin was using blockchain to store this balance information for the entire network. And the idea was that there would be a limit of 21 million coins that would initially be uh, written into the code that would be the most that would ever exist on the network. And then the blockchain would be used as a record to keep track of which accounts hold Bitcoins at which time and every transfer that occurs. And so ever since the advent of Bitcoin and, you know, the publication of its white paper and all that stuff, you, we've seen a proliferation of cryptocurrencies. Um, how do people know which ones are legit, which ones are not, which ones are, are real, right? Right. So the funny thing about money in a lot of cases is that Money is only valuable if, you know, if I were to create money right now, like create a, you know, different type of paper money, let's say, it would probably be worthless because money doesn't have value because I say it does. And so I think the really interesting thing, the, the just like explosive, whoa, type thing about Bitcoin for me early on was it proved that without government intervention, people could bootstrap a digital currency. And so it was just people came together and said, yeah, we're going to treat this as money. And when Bitcoin first started having any value beyond zero, the story goes that someone actually bought a pizza for someone else with Bitcoin to prove that Bitcoin had value. And they sent like an insane amount of Bitcoin, like 20,000 Bitcoin or something like that, which would be worth millions and millions of dollars today. But at the time, no one had given a value to this currency. So it started like that. And t- today we have, I wouldn't say a stable, but we have a constant existence of a value for Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies. And so it's pretty much a foregone conclusion at this point that you can actually bootstrap a currency without any government support or intervention. And that's really what came out of the tech. And, and that's what blockchain enables in a lot of cases for most of these currencies. 
Interesting. You know, you've always talked very publicly about the 51% attack feature of blockchain. Can you describe that very quickly and, and what value that adds to the entire system? So Bitcoin has 51% attack security issues. The, the basic concept, as I, as I mentioned earlier, when you're looking at a blockchain, everyone has to agree on which blocks are actually a part of the chain. So if a new block appears, how does everyone on the network decide, yes, I'm going to treat this as these transactions as valid. I'm going to create this block in my local version of the chain, and I'm going to agree that this is a part of the transaction history now. That process is typically called consensus, and there are many different ways to do that. The way that Bitcoin does it is by burning electricity through hash power, and it's a competition between everyone who's running the software to find a answer to a mathematical puzzle, and it just is, it can only be done, it's a mathematical puzzle that can only be done by brute force. So essentially there are computers testing different results to try to find an answer to this puzzle and the first one to find it ends up getting to create the next block and based on the rules of the network everyone's agreed that that occurs in that way and they also get a reward in the case of bitcoin for doing that so that's why they're excited there's an incentive behind it that they'll actually get some bitcoin if they do that so that's kind of how that works the problem is that the 51% attack issue is if someone actually has the power, enough electricity and what's called hashing power to create multiple blocks in a row and create more blocks than all the rest of the network combined, then they can actually seize control of the entire network. They can even go back and erase blocks that have already occurred in the history if they have enough hashing power. So there are risks to the system. There are certainly ways that Bitcoin can be broken. It's, it's pretty believable at this point that a government could actually destroy Bitcoin using 51% attacks, either by putting resources into creating their own mining equipment and electricity, or even just by seizing control of the majority of mining rigs that currently exist in China. And do all blockchains work like this? Or is this specifically the Bitcoin blockchain? It depends. The 51% attack issue is specific to hashing style consensus. There are similar attacks that can occur on different types of networks. For example, some networks use stake-based voting. So the participants of the network can vote in order to decide if a block is valid or not. And the similar attack can occur if someone has enough of the coins on the network, they can actually vote and control the network's behavior and what transaction are valid. So we see that same issue with proof of stake systems. And then beyond those two, we're not really seeing too many other types of consensus algorithms that are being used in public networks. For private networks, it's generally just that there are, when you're looking at private distributed ledgers, their consensus style is typically just that there's a list, a white list of members of the network. And so they're kind of voting together on the validity of the blocks that exist. And if they're, if they're using a blockchain or if, it, if they're not using a blockchain, they might also just be using some other type of uh, transaction format on a distributed ledger. But it would be the same thing where they're, they're voting to decide potentially amongst the whitelisted participants about which which one which transactions are valid 
And just so our more beginning level listeners understand, what's the difference between a public blockchain, a private blockchain, a permissioned and a permissioned list blockchain? So one of the really, really mind-blowing things about Bitcoin when it first came out is that you can just set up an account. Anyone can set up an account on Bitcoin without getting permission from anyone. So if, if I want to receive Bitcoin, I can just create an account on the fly and then give someone the address to send me money. So that's where it really strongly diverges from a typical bank account. And that's kind of how typically how public blockchains and distributed ledgers work of other types. Um, permissions and private chains are different because they might have a whitelisted participant list. They can have any type of membership process that they wish because it's the code just basically enforces that the only valid members are the ones that are included in this list that we have. And if we want that, some of them have a process for inducting new members where everyone votes. Um, there's all different ways to do membership in those networks, but uh, you can't go join Maersk's private blockchain network without their permission to do so or the other members of that consortium. Um, they're not open like like the public networks are. So I think that's the main difference. And because they're private, there is some advantage to them because they don't have to worry about, for example, they don't have to worry about someone creating spam transactions on the network because they know who all of the approved participants are. If any of their consortium members started spamming the network, they would just remove them from the, the consortium and remove them from the ledger whitelist and that, that problem would stop. Whereas with a public blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum, they have this issue where since anyone can make an account and start using it at any time, there's no one who has control over the network to stop something like a spam attack, for example. And so the incentives of the network have to be aligned such that those behaviors don't occur or they don't damage the network in a, in a large way if they do occur. And so... There are different types of parties using different types of blockchains. And, and if I could make a generalization, it seems that, you know, startups and smaller crypto projects seem to be using public chains, whereas, you know, enterprises seem to be using private and permissioned chains. Why do you think that is? So there's a lot of costs if you're going to use a public ledger. There's obviously transaction costs because of this issue that someone could spam the network. Pretty much universally, it's going to cost you something if you wish to publish transactions on a public chain. If you have a private chain, you know, if Amy, if you and I had a private chain together, uh, we wouldn't have to have any cost to transactions because we could just agree that we're not going to put useless transactions on the network. And so we can be sure that we can verify that every transaction we're sending has a purpose and where we have an Kind of, we have a we have a relationship potentially outside of that network, such that we may have legal agreements or other things that hold us to following the rules and participating in that network in a friendly way. Public blockchains, the users are at odds in their incentives. A lot of times, they have different reasons for being there completely. So, 
I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of the difference. Yeah, it sounds like transaction fees are one large concern, but it also comes down to governance, you know, what rules everyone's going to play by and risk, right? I'm sure larger enterprises are, you know, a lot of them, especially in the financial services industry, have chief risk officers. Um, risk is is definitely a calculus that a lot of enterprises um, think about day in, day out. And I think if you're operating on a public blockchain, the risk factor may be a little bit less predictable. Yeah. And and there's a couple other things to mention there. If you have a private blockchain and you're an enterprise and you have one with three other companies, like I said, you probably have some types of contracts that are signed about the network itself. If there's ever a problem with the network, you can obviously talk, pick up the phone, call the other participants and say, hey, let's freeze this network together and let's fix this problem. Let's revert the chain. You can do all these types of things that are really, really hard to do on a public chain. But also the other thing I wanted to mention that's big for enterprises, just the privacy factor. The entire concept of public distributed ledgers is that transactions are public. So there are exceptions because there are things like Monero and Zcash where transactions are private. But in general, if you're using something like Ethereum or Bitcoin, then all of the transactions are public. And that's something that in talking to enterprises has been very problematic for them because if they're going to use it to store some type of shipping data or performance data or revenue data, anyone can go look that up. And so there may actually be other types of risks for compliance officer to deal with there where it's just not practical. Right. And even aside from private company privacy considerations, there are things like GDPR and how are enterprises supposed to deal with that with public blockchain? I think the calculus becomes you know, infinitely more complex. Yeah. Right to be forgotten is fundamentally incompatible with immutable chains in the sense that you cannot delete something once you put it out there. So that little piece of GDPR is very problematic. And then just also anything you put on the chain is shared. So potentially You could have GDPR violations about leaking information. Right. I've heard other folks talk about distributed ledger, right? And they use the term in a way to contrast themselves from blockchain. What is the difference between blockchain and distributed ledger, if any? So in general, I would think of blockchains as a subcategory underneath distributed ledgers. So Most blockchains, public blockchains that we know of, even private blockchains, are distributed ledgers. Distributed ledger just means a distributed database, essentially. And so there are lots of examples of that that go back quite a long time. Um, You can build a distributed ledger using off-the-shelf MySQL tech if you wanted to, or just standard database software. So it's it's a vague term to say probably something more about who's sharing that data and why. So when I think of distributed ledgers, I think of companies trying to develop consortiums, and that's where I've heard it used. And so they can share, like I know Maersk is, has, I don't know if they are still, but they, they talked about setting up a distributed ledger for shipping data to be shared. And the, the idea of that being distributed is that not no one participant of the network is able to modify the data because they're all seeing it together and then they have that trust in each other that 
a whole bunch of the parties aren't going to decide they're going to go modify the data. So it just creates a trust factor over the data. So speaking from a technologist's perspective and not that of a lawyer, you know, a lot of the audience for this podcast are attorneys who may have clients in the blockchain industry or space. What things should they be thinking about in counseling and advising their clients? On the technology side, obviously there is, there has been in the past, the securities implications of some of the approaches that companies have taken to uh, blockchain tech, like, you know, creating their own tokens and things like that, which has, you know, we've been seeing a lot of legal concerns around that. The other side is just protecting the funds of the company. Obviously, there's the volatility of cryptocurrency. So I think there's there's a lot of potential there to be negligent with funds of the company if you're, you know, gambling with it and you have shareholders and that's not the primary use case of your company. Um, I've definitely talked to some people who have told me that they're, they, they did a lot of gambling with the company funds in cryptocurrency. Uh, and then there's tons of risk factors if you're holding funds for users in cryptocurrency of just, it's much easier for someone to steal cryptocurrency from a company in general than it would be for them to steal cash from a company or something like that because it's harder to track down who did it. A lot of the networks, although they do have complete history of what occurred, the accounts on the system are all pseudonymous. We've heard a lot about cases where there was even someone inside the company that had access to the private keys and funds were stolen. So I think it's mainly looking at risk factors around those types of issues. Got it. Fantastic. So Dan is going to join us on one more episode, the next episode, which is going to be on smart contracts and all the various issues around that. And then we're going to be launching into subject matter experts who are attorneys talking about blockchain and legal issues um, from a very legal perspective. But Dan, thanks so much for joining us on this intro to blockchain. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.